this point in Luke's gospel account, we find ourselves, as I've tried to frame this before, in the second act of this great redemptive historical two-act play. The first act meant to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who calms the wind and the waves with his voice? Who is this Jesus who makes blind men see and lame men walk? Who is this Jesus who raises the dead and casts out demons by the legions? The curtain closing on act one, so to speak, with Peter's famous declaration going back to chapter nine, verse 20, where Jesus said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. First act meant to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Second act meant to answer the question, why is he here? What has he come to accomplish? As the curtain opens on act two, Jesus answers that question emphatically saying, I'm here to suffer, to die, and to rise from the grave. In fact, Luke chapter nine goes on the very next verse, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's a prophecy that the Disciples struggle to accept all the way up to the last chapter of Luke's gospel account as we see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus disoriented, devastated. Jesus now, as we find ourselves in Luke chapter 12, having directed his gaze toward the city of Jerusalem, the city in which the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah might be fulfilled. Everything up to this point in Luke's gospel account, and if you've been around, you've felt this, helping us to see just how desperate we are for Jesus to make that journey down the Calvary Road. Jerusalem now the goal, the, the focal point of where this story's headed. As we pick up this morning's passage, Jesus has managed to draw an incredibly large crowd, so large that people are trampling one another Right after pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees, mind you, some really heavy stuff on Jesus' part. It's in the midst of that chaotic scene that, that Jesus pulls his disciples aside, warning them that religious hypocrisy is not the only kind of hypocrisy. That there's a hypocrisy that reveals itself when persecution comes, when suffering and hardship come. A hypocrisy that that denies Jesus as the scribes and Pharisees have, yet with very different motivations in mind. Right? Jesus knows that his disciples will soon face persecution just as, as he too will, and so he exhorts them not to fear their persecutors, those who have the power to kill the body, but rather to have a right fear of the Lord, a reverence toward God that sees beyond this life to the life to come. Hold on to that, because that's gonna make sense to us as we dive into this morning's passage. And with that, this call to, to trust in the Lord, who's sovereign over the lives of their children down to the, the very hairs on their heads. Not only that they might have courage to acknowledge Christ before men, no matter what it might cost them, but two, that they might not lay up treasures for themselves that cannot and will not last, but instead would embrace a life of kingdom-minded, sacrificial generosity. It's God's good pleasure to give his people the kingdom the promised inheritance for those who are in Christ, that knowing God as Father and resting in the truth that, that we are his children, that's the way not only to true freedom and God-glorifying obedience, but also to a life of deeper security and deeper peace. I'm sure we all want that going into this new year, the kind of security and peace that goes further than just worrying less, 
but that seeks to leverage what we have for the kingdom of heaven. Our knees bent in glad submission to the will of our heavenly father as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, a kingdom that will outlast and outshine the kingdom of this world when all is said and done. Speaking of that coming kingdom, if you pick up in verse 35 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus continues with these words, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Right out of the gate, before we dive into and unpack this passage together, can I just say, this is vastly different from your standard early January vision-casting church sermon. All right, this doesn't have the essence of we're, we're all in this adventure together and this is where this is going in 2022 and it's gonna be amazing and you wanna be on board the train for, for this thing as we move forward and this is all that's at stake. It doesn't have that sort of feel-good essence or vibe to it, but it has the meat and substance of everything that you would hear in a sermon like that. It just happens to be through some of the weightiest words in all of scripture. And so I just want you to think about that as we continue to move through the scriptures this morning with that sort of perspective of what kind of vision is Jesus casting that I could grab hold of as I move into 2022 and seek to, to glorify God and maximize my own joy in his glorification. Jesus starts here in the continuation of a series of warnings and teachings where we left off as we picked up the Advent season, in this case in the form of a parable. A parable, we've talked about this before in Luke's gospel account, being a story that communicates a deeper reality or a hidden truth, melting the hearts of those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, those to whom it's been given, chapter 8, verse 10, by God's grace to know the secrets of the kingdom, while at the same time hardening the hearts of others in divine judgment, those who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, Romans 1. Here Jesus tells the story of the master of an estate having left his home to attend a wedding feast. His servants expectantly ready and waiting for him to return, prepared to open the door immediately upon hearing his knock. Even if that knock should come in the second or third watch of the night while most of the world is sleeping. Rewarded for their readiness, Jesus says, with a feast of their own, seated around the master's table. The master himself, so well pleased, Jesus says, that he's happy to reverse roles with his servants in serving those who had faithfully served him. It's a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Jesus declares that his second coming will be like that. At an hour that no one expects, the second or third watch of the night, so to speak. And with that, blessing for those who are ready, expectantly waiting in hopeful anticipation for his return, the second advent as we've talked about for the last month or so. Verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are, are you telling this parable for, for us or, or for all? Is this call to be ready an exhortation just 
for, for us designated apostles for your closest inner circle? Or is this a warning and teaching for everybody? And the Lord said, verse 42, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Here Jesus makes it clear that this teaching is not just for Peter and his friends, but for all to whom much has been given. Verse 48, as Jesus will go on to say, that blessing awaits those who are faithful and wise, kingdom-minded stewards with that which they've been entrusted in this world and in this life, as Jesus will entrust to them so much more in the world and life to come. Setting them over all his possessions, verse 44, whatever that means. No commentary unpacked that, by the way, because no one knows what to do with it. It's so heavy and weighty and wondrous. Jesus goes on, verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, and here's the contrast, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, then the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. We just got R-rated. There's no clear play or vid angel that you can bring into the scriptures. In contrast to the faithful servant, here Jesus paints this picture of the unfaithful servant who lives as though this is all there is. Like the rich man consumed with greed going back to the earlier part of this very same chapter. So that no matter how much he possessed, he wanted more. A man ungrateful to God, failing to acknowledge that without God's provision of rain, he would have no harvest in the first place. More than that, a man who was selfish, showing no indication of a willingness to care for others out of his abundance. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. Self-focused and delusional. Believing himself to be secure, having established enough in the storehouses to eat, drink, and be merry for years to come, all the while failing to consider that he might not live to see his next day that his soul would soon be required of him. That Jesus will someday return at an hour that those like the rich fool do not expect. And those who have lived as though this world is all that there is, they will experience the judgment of the master, Jesus says. A judgment depicted in, uh, depicted in incredibly grisly and graphic language. The unfaithful servant cut in pieces and put with the unfaithful. I tell you, my friends, Jesus said back in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Right? Jesus calls for a right fear of the Lord, a reverence toward God that sees beyond this life to the life to come. In present day application, looking at these verses in chapter 12, we're not talking about people who are outside of the church, but rather those who are inside of the church. Self-identifying servants of the master. In our day, good church-going people who prize this life more than the one to come. Proving themselves to be hypocrites in the end, just like Judas would. That's heavy. It's incredibly sobering. 
The church, particularly in the American South, still, though things are shifting, is filled with people who come into spaces like these and sit under the teaching of God's word like this, just like people in the crowd with Jesus, and then who go out and live as though this life is all there is. There's a lot of modern-day application for us in a passage like this. He goes on in verse 47. And that servant who did his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Here Jesus declares that there's not one level of punishment for those who die outside of Christ or outside of Christ when he returns, any more than there's one level of reward in heaven for we who are united to Christ by faith. As the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That on the one hand, Jesus came to live the only perfectly righteous commandment-keeping life the world has ever known. Not a trace of sin to be found in Jesus Christ. His perfect commandment-keeping record credited to rebellious, covenant-breaking sinners like you and me by grace through faith that Jesus came to destroy the power of death through his own death, the sinless one bearing the sins of his people in sacrificial love so that we who trust in Jesus can stand before the Lord someday knowing that his bringing of every deed into judgment will not destroy us because Jesus Christ was destroyed on our behalf at Mount Calvary. That's good news. And yet, with that, we Christians will all give an account for what we've done in the body, in this life, and will be rewarded accordingly in the age to come in accordance with our zealous ambition to please Jesus in this life. Similarly, those who die apart from Christ will too give account for what they've done in the body and will be punished accordingly in the age to come. For some, the punishment more severe than others, Jesus says. That those who have had the benefit of sitting under the preaching of God's word and having chosen a life of faithlessness and rebellion, there's something more severe that awaits. And yet all under the one and same punishment of banishment from the glory of God's presence forever, which is the greatest tragedy of it all. The stakes are high. These red letter words carry with them the, the weightiness of eternity. C.S. Lewis once wrote in his work, The Weight of Glory, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person, think about this, you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship, radiating with the glory of God one day, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Lewis goes on to say, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, he says, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. 
But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What a, what a sobering thought. Though we will all die unless Jesus returns first, we will all live forever. Some, as Jesus paints a picture here with his words this morning, will live as everlasting splendors seated around the banqueting table of the master. While others will live, to use Lewis's words, as immortal horrors, separated from God forever in an eternal nightmare. If you're not a Christian, oh my goodness. Jesus, he's the, the only basis of man's acquittal in the cosmic courtroom of the divine. The only name under heaven, Acts chapter 4 verse 12, given among men by which we must be saved. How can guilty sinners have any hope of being declared righteous in God's sight? And the answer is, and we say it all the time around here, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. I implore you, if you're not a Christian, to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus for salvation, that you might be on the right side of judgment when the master returns. Jesus Continues in verse 48, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Surely there are implications here regarding money and possessions as, again, these words come on the heels of Jesus' parable of the rich fool and the exhortation not to be anxious about the basic needs of life, going back to the earlier part of this chapter. But more than that, this is a statement about the stewardship of the master's word, the master's will, having been entrusted with the master's teaching. The language here, very similar to that in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower. You may recall uh, verse 18 of that chapter where Jesus said, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even that Uh, What he thinks he has will be taken away. Very similar to verse 48 of this morning's passage. Take care then how you hear. Not how you spend or save or give away. Though that matters in the stewardship of God's economy and kingdom. But Jesus goes further than that. Going back to Luke 8. That those who put the word of God to use like like a lamp on a stand. They're given to understand more of God's truth. To bear more fruit in keeping with repentance. Whereas those who fail to put the word of God to use, like a lamp covered, they lose that which they they think they have. You may recall that those words of Jesus in Luke chapter 8 were followed with these very words. Then uh, then, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, and here it is. My mothers and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. The Christian life is a life of believing the word of God and living in light of that belief. Hearing the word of God, to use Jesus' language, and and doing it. Remember, the the religious leaders in the context of of this book of the Bible, where we are, were by and large rejecting Jesus' message and ministry. Having eyes but not seeing having ears but not hearing, living lives of greed and self-indulgence at the expense of those around them, going back to verse 45, neglecting justice, trampling others underfoot 
in the name of their own reputation and power. While others were receiving the master's word and bearing the fruit of extravagant love and servant-hearted obedience, like the sinful woman forgiven who fell at the feet of Jesus, pouring her tears on those very feet, along with her alabaster flask of perfumed oil. Coming back to this morning's passage, how do we know what, what Jesus requires of us? I mean, it's a question that I think has to be answered with another question. With what has Jesus entrusted us? Not only in terms of our possessions, but more than that, in terms of our knowledge of the master's word and will. To use the the imagery of the parable of the sower, Luke chapter 8, where a a root of faith exists by God's grace, the fruit of cultivated Christ-likeness will too exist. The fruit in the field showing the soil of our hearts to be truly alive. So that would present us with this question this morning, which I think coincides with Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 12. The question is this, is the seed of God's word finding fertile ground in the spirit's tilling of the soil of your heart so that you're receiving the word and bearing fruit? Jesus goes on with what seem to be very heavy words, and they are, but here's where the hope of the gospel comes in. Believe it or not, verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Why did Jesus come into this world? I mean, there are a number of answers to that question. John Piper wrote a book, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die, and there are actually more than 50. A number of answers readily come to mind for me personally. John chapter 10, verse 10 I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John chapter 18, verse 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth and on and on we could go. The reason Jesus gives here in Luke chapter 12 for coming into the world is perhaps a little startling to many of us. And yet with heavy words, look at the beauty of the gospel that Jesus presents. I I came to cast fire on the earth and that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress until it's accomplished. What is Jesus talking about here? I mean, he's, he's already been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, going back to the earliest chapters of this book of the Bible, right? Meaning that that there's another baptism that awaits, a future baptism that fills Jesus with great distress as he ponders it, as he anticipates it. He's talking about Mount Calvary, a baptism of fire, the fire of God's judgment, the pouring out of God's wrath upon Jesus in the place of sinners, which we know would go on to cause Jesus great distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. That Jesus came into the world to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, leaving no drop left behind that you and I, covenant-breaking sinners, might be spared of that cup. Here declaring his longing to be on the other side of the cross. And would that it were already kindled, verse 39, that the it is finished of his crucifixion were behind him. He goes on and Verse 51, and here's some of that mother and brother's language yet again. 
He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five added, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Don't misapply the last part of those verses. It's not what you think it means. Yes, Jesus is, is the Prince of Peace, the only hope of God and sinners reconciled. We talked about it all throughout the Christmas season. And yet, the coming of the Prince of Peace would bring division. 1 Peter 2.8, Jesus, the stone of stumbling over whom many will fall. The people were divided over what to do with Jesus in his own day. And people are divided over what to do with Jesus to this very day. Jesus reveals the thoughts from many hearts, going back to chapter 2, verse 35. Light exposing darkness. That there is no position of neutrality when it comes to Jesus, as Luke has gone on over and over again to, to make crystal clear to us. That he's the son who either melts the ice or hardens the clay. There is no third option. A reality with which he's going to continue to bring us face to face as we continue with Jesus on this journey to Jerusalem, that we're either for Jesus or against him. We either acknowledge Jesus before men or we deny him before men. In acknowledging him before men, we will inevitably receive criticism, perhaps even hostility, so that there is some some sort of interpersonal application to these verses between image bearers in this life. And yet there's application as well in the age to come. The separating of the sheep from the goats. Believers and unbelievers knowing a vastly different destiny. Even those who share a bloodline. Again, there's a lot at stake. He goes on in verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Weather in the first century Mediterranean world was predictable in certain ways, unlike Georgia. (laughs) Clouds rising in the west would, would bring dampened air. That produced showers as they ascended the cooler hills. Same thing with south winds blowing in from the desert, which brought with them scorching heat. Jesus says, you can predict the weather based on the signs, but you fail to see the signs in the blindness of your hypocrisy that the kingdom of God is upon you. It's right here for the taking. In the words of one scholar, they understood the winds of earth, but not the winds of God. They could discern the sky but not the heavens. Their religious externalism prevented them from seeing the significance of the coming of Jesus. Verse 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, Jesus says, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus closes out this this moment of teaching, not so much with 
a word on how to handle disputes, though there's surely wisdom in what Jesus is saying in an everyday practical sense between image bearers, but rather in the the broader context of what Jesus is saying to the crowds here in in, uh, connection to everything we've talked about this morning, it's an exhortation to not wait until the day of judgment to settle things with God. On that day, Jesus says it'll be too late. That those who are not united to Christ by faith will be handed over to judgment and they won't escape that judgment until they pay their debt in full. And as many of us know, it's a debt that none of us could ever pay. A debt that only Christ could pay on our behalf. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, the stakes are high. These red letter words carrying with them the weightiness of eternity. In the hearing of these words, consider this, we're all the more without excuse. Each of us in this room this morning, having sat under the master's teaching. As the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, if you're, if you're not a Christian, today is the day of salvation. I urge you, urge you to repent of your sin and to turn to Jesus and trust for salvation. Like the rich fool, you're not promised tomorrow. And for we who profess to be followers of Christ, again, here's where the vision casting comes in for 2022. And here's where I hope we see the appropriateness of such heavy red letter words that they would press on our souls in a couple of different ways that would radically shape the way we live our lives as we leave this place this morning and venture into this new year together. For one, I pray that these words of Jesus would fill us with joyful gratitude. Joyful gratitude in knowing that Jesus paid it all in drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for us. That in Christ, the just, holy, and good wrath of God against our sin has been fully, not partly, fully satisfied. That's why we have verses like 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Right, here, here's your dictionary definition of the love of God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Joyful gratitude as we leave this place in light of this morning's passage. Yes and amen. As we consider just how deep the Father's love truly is for us. As I say all the time around here, we're far more sinful than we ever imagine, but we're far more loved than we ever dare dream. You're a loved son. You're a loved daughter of God if you are in Christ and you leave this place this morning. And with that joyful gratitude, a sobering urgency. An urgency in terms of our expectation and readiness for the master's return, prepared to open the door immediately upon his knock, so to speak, longing for the return of the one who gave his life for us, giving our lives for him in glad submission until we see him face to face. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon that once said something to the effect of, be living as though Christ will return a moment from now. And with that, as I said before, a sobering urgency with respect to evangelizing the lost. As there are in Lewis's words, no ordinary people. Our prayer is that God would fan into flame a deeper zeal for evangelism, 
for us individually and collectively as a church as we embark upon this new year. That many more might know the joy of being seated someday around that great banqueting table of the master. And I'll leave you with that imagery as we exit this place this morning. You nor I, we have no clue as to how this year is going to unfold for us. We do not know the end from the beginning on a micro level, not one of us. Which is why the author of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 would say things and frame them the way he would. There's a time for mourning and a time for dancing and laughter. There's a time for both because we're going to experience some sort of mixture of a both and this year. And we have no idea of what that cocktail is going to shake up to be. What we do know is the end from the beginning on a macro level. And we know that there's a table that awaits and that in some bizarre fashion, King Jesus is going to take the posture of a servant to serve his people who have been faithful and have trusted in him. And so I pray that that picture fortifies you as you step out into 2022. That you would be mindful of the end from the beginning. And that that would shape and transform the way that you you live your life this year. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship the master. I think even that language, it communicates something more than what Christianity is has been reduced to in our context, which is Jesus, the one who would die for my sins. Is that true? Absolutely. But he's not just a savior, but a king. As we started off this morning, Jesus is not just calling us to have a sure knowledge of who he is, but to follow him, to leave our nets. He is the master. We are his servants, his people. We exist for his glory. So I invite you to glorify him through your song as we continue with our service this morning, as we bring our collective voice into the throne room of God. And with that, the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table there. Uh, You're welcome to go grab one of those. At any point between now and the end of our service, you're welcome to receive of those elements. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood over these last few songs. As you prepare to receive of those elements, I invite you to just come back to verses 49 and 50 and to consider where this story is headed. That Luke will go on to tell us That Jesus would die in the place of sinners, receiving the fullness of God's right, good, and holy wrath on our behalf. That we could someday stand before the judge and not just be counted acquitted, but righteous in his sight. 